Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are guide are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so uh, hopefully everyone has an outline. Did these ladies get outlines as they came in? And... Uh, we are continuing in our uh, series that we've been doing, Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel Series. For those of you just coming in, uh, we started with a scripture reading from all of Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, uh, I almost felt as he was reading that, like saying, uh, keep in mind that that's from the Bible, and Paul wrote that, because there's so much contrary to modern thinking that I was like, you know, like, that." 
I didn't write that. <laughs> you know, I wash my hands of that, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. And uh, there's so much in there that uh, that uh, is contrary to our modern churches and our modern postmodern culture that, um, oh, well, it's Romans 2. So blame it on Romans 2. So we're uh, what we're doing today is actually the 20th message in this series, and we're at the halfway point. So maybe we'll finish this in 40. Who, uh, probably not. But uh, <laughs> don't count on it. But uh, we are looking at eight elements of the gospel. You know, it is becoming an increasingly uh, popular genre of Christian books to say, hey, there's elements missing from the gospel that we preach in America today. And there's lots of elements missing from the gospel. And so we chose the word essential very carefully. These are the elements that if you don't have these in your heart and mind, then you've believed something different than the gospel. You've believed a different gospel. And so these are, are very important. Now, what I actually want to do is kind of speak, especially to the people today who are really before God, getting to a place where they're trying to learn how to bear fruit in the gospel. Uh, We talk a lot at Grace Christian Fellowship about moving from a decision-making model of evangelism to a disciple-making model of evangelism. And our modern evangelism coming out of the 1800s became very heavy on kind of a uh, one-time sinner's prayer experience. And then kind of like the Galatians did, you perfect yourself from there. And you maybe kind of give up being performance-based for a minute but not, not totally and not fully and not that deeply, and then you go back to perfecting yourself. And you, the gospel is for everyday living. You can't make any progress in Christ except by rightly relating to the gospel all the time. And so uh, we've covered elements one through four pretty thoroughly, and today I really want to talk about how to use them to bear fruit. Uh, the truth of the matter is, is... Uh, One of the things we've tried to emphasize is this gap between God and man that almost all gospel presentations have, but we've come to believe it to be too small a gap. And so um, a great deal of what blindness is, is just believing that you can cross that gap by works, by performance, by good deeds, by, by whatever, and you get the order because, tr- the tr- you know, true grace does produce works, but it's the grace that produces the works, not, not uh, anything that's innately within us. I like to put a little s- subtitles, you know, if you read, if you're big on reading 18th century literature and the Puritans and people like that, they would always have these book titles that were like 35 words long, <laughs> and then the chapter titles were even longer. And so I like uh, subtitles that will kind of help us start to get acclimated. So one of my subtitles here is the grace of conviction confession. Because uh, hopefully we'll see by the end of the message that uh, the deeper conviction works and the more honestly you get about confessing, uh, the more grace is released into your life. And it's actually grace that leads you to that in the first place. Uh, So... Hopefully we'll get understand more about what that means by the end of today. Uh, 
And then uh, this is not a popular idea, but uh, what I want to uh, talk about, especially, you know, we have a lot of, of young Christians in there, some, somewhere between 18 and 35 years old, that are really starting to uh, make a lot of progress in Christ and, and really starting to consistently, regularly bear fruit. John 15, 8, Jesus says, by this my Father's glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. How much fruit you're bearing and what kind of fruit you're bearing um, is actually indicative of the quality of your discipleship. And that's true both of individuals and of a corporate team as, as we work together in Christian community. Uh, we uh, will... You all, every seed brings forth fruit after its own kind. It's a principle that starts in Genesis 1 and goes through the, own, all, the whole Bible. You will bear fruit according to how far you've gone with God. You are always multiplying yourself. I'm thinking about doing a message saying you're contagious. What is, what is it that people are catching from you? And uh, you, you are contagious. You're an evangelist. Whether you know it or not, you are evangelizing your friends, your relatives, uh, your classmates, your coworkers to who you are. And there's no way around that. Every seed brings forth fruit after its own kind. So part of what uh, we're about, you know, people say, what are you trying to do at Grace Christian Fellowship? Well, one of our slogans is acceptance as you are, empowerment to grow. And I really want to focus on that today. Like you, if you're going to bear fruit, people have to know that God and, and us accept them how they are. They got to know that. And you can make very little progress until they know that. And if I have to, uh, I will kind of make overtures to a person when they start coming. And I'll say, you know, we have older Christians that are trained and equipped and ready to help you grow. And most people don't want that at first. And I'm like, okay, we'll, ju we'll wait on it. Because eventually you'll want that or you won't want to grow in Christ. Um, you know, the gospel was meant uh, all through the Bibles. You know, jo Moses with Joshua, Elijah with Elisha, Elisha with Gehazi, uh, all the way through the prophets and the sons of the prophets and and so forth, you met Jesus with the 12, Paul with Timothy, Titus. There's around 30 names associated with Paul in the New Testament as his team. You were meant to be, uh, be in covenant, committed relationships, especially with people who are further than you in the things of God and, can, and, and to walk with you. People always, uh, usually at my second or third or fourth meeting with someone, I'll say, if they've, especially if they've grown up in contemporary models of the church, I'll say, how much time have you ever spent with a pastor like this before? And they almost will always say, I've spent more time with you than I ever spent with a pastor. And I'm always a little astounded, maybe a little grieved at that answer. Because you were, you were meant, you know, you were meant, even, the, in, even in the natural People do better when they have a great father and a great mother who are the same father and mother that actually bore them and, and bring them up. I'm all for adoption, by the way, and we were adopted into the kingdom. But I'm just saying, when you, have, when you have parents who love you, who spend time with you, and who help you first get deep in your life, 
that you're accepted right for who you are. That's when you can actually begin to hear what you need to hear, which is that you're not all that. (laughs) You need some help. (laughs) You need a lot more help than you think you need. And so what I want to do today is just kind of review how big the gap is. Because all of modern culture, starting with the secular culture with Freudian psychology and modern sociology and so forth, uh, is designed to, to get rid of that gap. And the church has played into this, and we have increasingly over the last 150 years through antinomianism and all sorts of other reasons, we have gotten rid of the gap. And then we marvel that they don't want our good news because you will never want the good news until you really deep down in the fabric of your being believe that you're the bad news. Then you will totally be set free by the good news. And actually the art of loving people is the art of letting them know you love them how they are until they have the courage and the grace to hear what God says about who you are And what God says about who you are is a huge, huge gap. You've got a problem, and the problem's not God. (laughs) The problem is in your set. You know, in technology, the problem's not in your set. No, it really is. (laughs) Uh, The the problem, you know, I've met the problem. I'm an expert at the problem because the problem is me. I'm the problem. That's what we hopefully want to see today. Um, John 7, 7, another subtitle here. Jesus says, the world cannot hate you. Now, uh, we'll go back to that in a second. Let me get the whole verse in. I can always start commenting before I finish reading it. That's why I always have someone read the uh, whole scripture first, so I won't be tempted to comment as I go. Uh, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Anyone ever heard a, uh, a message on this verse? Sorry. Uh, the, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify it of it that its deeds are evil. Now, uh, I, I never heard a message on this verse. Now, people, uh, if you take this verse out of context, you'll misunderstand it. Because when he says the world does not hate you, he's not speaking to his disciples at this point. He abundantly tells the disciples over and over and over that the world will hate you. You can count on it. It's like, you know, those people like promises. They have they have things called promise boxes. And there's actually a little Christian song that says, every promise in the book is mine. Every jot, every tittle, every line. So let me, let me just tell you that one of the great promises is, if you progress in Christ, the world will hate you. Praise God. <laughs> Good news this morning. <laughs> uh, uh, you have that to look forward to. And the more you grow in Christ, the more the world will hate you. And if nobody's hating you, you're probably just getting started, or you probably need to get started. <laughs> uh, if you haven't made anybody mad lately, you might want to reconsider. So, you know, we're actually talking about today how to love not the world, because God so loved the world. Now, everyone says the Bible's not full of contradictions. Romans 1.20 says the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen. <laughs> there's a contradiction in one verse. No, there's actually paradoxical things 
that on the surface seem to be antithetical, but upon further examination, they're not contradictory. And the Bible tells us that God so loved the world. And the Bible, therefore, tells us not to love the world. And anyone who has the love of the world does not have the love of the Father in them. So hopefully you'll understand what that means by the end of this message. That would be my goal. Now, uh, the last couple weeks we've been looking, uh, I think we spent around five weeks on this, at uh, why the apostles always used what I call the Hebrew Scriptures, what is commonly called today the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, uh, but the old, what we think of as the Old Covenant actually started in Exodus chapter 19. So the Hebrew Scriptures include Genesis 1 through Exodus 19. Uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, um, Jesus over and over and over said that they testify of him, and the, the apostles always preached the Old Testament Scriptures to reveal Christ. And what we hope, hopefully saw in the last five or six weeks, is they didn't just do that because they were speaking to Jewish audiences, and now we can ignore that in modern times. I've never heard anyone, thank God that God raised up a brother named Scott McKnight, who wrote a book called The King Jesus Gospel, who's the first guy I've ever heard in 41 years of reading Christian books, who said, hey, wait a minute. The New Testament Gospel has a lot about the history of Israel in it. Because you can't find a gospel presentation in the New Testament that doesn't cover the history of Israel and how Jesus is the fulfillment of every aspect of it. And you can't really understand Jesus if you don't understand the Old Testament. Unfortunately, there's a number of Christian philosophies, hermeneutics, way, ways of looking at the Bible that have basically led most Christians to be kind of trapped in a world where only the New Testament and, and, and certain parts of it are, are relevant. But that's just not true. That's why we've labored a lot over the last three or four years, both John and myself, in this church, about helping you see Christ in the Old Testament. Now, we looked at it last, you know, over several weeks, and there's a summary of some of the points in, in uh, Roman numeral 2, and I hope you understand now that all the outlines are always available, just email me. I'll email them to you. Uh, hopefully, we're going to eventually have them on the website where you have the outline right next to the podcast. But, um, you know, there's podcasts on our website, and generally, uh, the one category of the podcast that says 930 Sunday School, for the most part, are me and the, the ones that say 1030 regular worship service are John. And so much so that last week when we switched roles, because I was speaking at another church at 9 o'clock, uh, we still put my message at, under the 930 and his message under the 1030, because people know to look for his stuff there. But what we're trying to do is something very complimentary. Um, so the... Uh, so let's look. Let's get into I'm, it, what I'm going to do today is kind of interweave, uh, recapping these first four elements a little bit for those of us who might have missed them, uh, th with how to use them uh, to help people because they've got to see the bad news to have hope. They have to see there's no hope in and of themselves. There's no hope in religion. 
There's no hope in self-help psychology. The most popular genre of Christian books at Christian bookstores is self-help pop psychology. And that is not going to help you at all. What you need is not a little rehabilitation. You don't just need a little reformation. You need regeneration. You need to become a complete, total new creature in Christ. And that's got to become practical in your experience. So let's uh, recap some of these things and uh, talk about, I'm hoping that as we talk about them, that I can give us some help into how to use these to open blind eyes. This is how I, you know, I have breakfast with Roy Hall every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. And we go, he's supposed to leave by 9, but we go to 9.15 or 9.30, and then he's late to his next meeting, and I'm late to my next meeting because we're, because we're having a great time. And, you know, we're both tempted to call in and just say, uh, I won't be coming in today. I'm just going to seek the Lord and read the Bible. But, you know, you can't do that. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, you know, eventually you uh, leave your tip, pay the check, move on. So, and uh, report late to work. But uh, what I'm always trying to do in any of these kinds of meetings, I, you know, a lot of you know that Terry and I met for like a year, every Monday night, La Rosa's all-you-can-eat spaghetti. <laughs> and uh, on Monday nights, and uh, uh, anyway, and uh, we, what, we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to, to use the scriptures to open blind eyes, and the first thing you got to see is the bad news. Because people want to have, here's how you know that you just need to keep loving people and, and kind of patiently wait it out when they continue to be concerned about the consequences of their life and behavior, but they're not really concerned about the deeper issues of how they became that person. Because what's become popular in America, is a gospel that says Jesus came to save you from hell. But Jesus came to save you from your sin and from yourself. And heaven and hell are just the, uh, the, the, the trajectories of a life lived, eternal life. John 17, 3, is that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is something that begins at regeneration and continues to grow as you continue to be filled with the Spirit, full of the knowledge of Scripture, full of the wisdom. You begin to experience the living Word of God, Jesus Christ, in the written Word of God, and you experience the living Word of God in Christian community, and you experience the living Word of God by the Holy Spirit who came to bear witness of Jesus, John 15, 26. Okay, so we're talking a little bit about the attributes of God in this whole respect. But I, as we cover these, I want you to think in terms of how do I help blind eyes see this? And I want this uh, phrase, I, I made up a word this morning. Uh, I have a license to preach, but I don't, know, I don't have a license to make up words, but what the heck. Uh, and I just put the, a hyphen between the words conviction and confession. And so that's the new, that's a new word, conviction, confession. Uh, make it, it's one word. You never knew it was one word. Uh, 
the Holy Spirit came to convict us of sin, night, righteousness, and judgment. Now, what happens when God is drawing someone is they start to come under conviction progressively. And uh, what you have to do is kind of, that's why I'm into a very relational discipleship kind of evangelism. Because you have to kind of stay with them as they're starting to come into conviction. Because at first, all they can see is, oh my God, there's a lot of bad consequences from my ungodly life, but they don't, they just know, they just see the outer surface of the problems they're facing. And they just want relief from those problems. They don't really want God. They just want to not, whatever the consequence that's facing them is. Everybody's like that. That's just what the Bible teaches about, about biblical psychology. And so, They have remorse, not repentance. Jesus says in the first, very first beatitude, the very first stepping stone into the kingdom is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. When God loves someone, no one can come to the Father. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws. And when God is drawing someone to the kingdom, they begin to see their spiritual poverty. And at first, they just experience it as, oh my gosh, I'm a mess. And that's not all bad. I work with a lot of really troubled people. You know, that's kind of a specialty for me. Alcoholics, I've known people that are so messed up, but you just, you, you walk away going like, How, when are they going to bottom out? They've actually lost their mind. You know, I was just uh, with a guy in an insane asylum recently, and he's telling me how uh, he's, now I finally see that Paul is God and that Jesus wasn't God. And, and this, all my problems are my dad's fault and they're your fault. And there's these people that are keeping me in this insane asylum's fault. But he, he was some completely out of touch with reality, but, there, but part of how he was out of touch with reality was there was no grace to be humble. So when God uh, draws someone, the first thing that has to happen is they have to begin to see this gap and understand that the gap is much bigger than you ever thought. My pastor, Ray Nethery, you know, he's this kindly old gentleman, very different kind of personality than me. And, uh, but he, and he has a way of smiling and he smiles at you and goes, cheer up you're much worse off than you think. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, I walk away and I, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Let me think on that a minute. Cheer up, you're much worse off than you think. Because it's the beginning of wisdom to fear God. And the fear of God is knowing that you can't escape the consequences And you brought the consequences on, and you deserve the consequences. And when you really start to get set free, you don't care anymore about the consequences. But you care about getting right with God. That's huge. And so it's the grace of conviction. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
people, uh, the most amazingly messed up people are sometimes not at all poor in spirit. Sometimes people, you know, because of the depth of sin, you will never get past. Hopefully you never go like, oh my God. But, you know, I actually don't tell people my whole testimony until I know them pretty well. Because when they start hearing, you know, that I was in high school dealing drugs out of the chief of police's house, they're like, and you're a pastor? Like, what? (laughs) You know, because I was blind. I was deaf, dumb, and stupid. And uh, I didn't know any reality. And I was very self-confident for no no reason at all. (laughs) And that's just how fallen man is. And I don't tell people the rest because it's even worse. So, uh, (laughs) you know, Jesus came to rescue you. And the sad thing is, if you grew up religious and you never had a wild side or whatever, but you did it for the fear of man and self-righteousness and all kinds of other things, you're probably harder to reach. That's why Jesus blasted the Pharisees so much because they saw themselves as not blind. And it wasn't that he, Jesus, didn't read the modern books on how to win friends and influence people, and he hadn't, you know, understood the seeker-sensitive gospel yet or any kind of things like this. And, And he was behind the curve of learning. And holy cow, it was because he loved them. And sometimes when you love someone, you gotta kinda hit them in the face with truth. To the degree that they know you're doing it because God loves them and you love them, to that degree, they can begin to walk in this conviction, confession, word. Because conviction means to see the gap. And confession comes from the Greek word homo, legeo, homo meaning like homogenized milk or homosexual meaning the same, logos being the word for the word. And confession is when you call it what God calls it. When someone calls me and they start telling me all the consequences, I just listen. And then I pray that someday they'll want to hear something deeper than that. Because the consequences will keep coming until the axe is laid at the root. Repentance is always radical. It always gets to the root of the tree. And the root is our sin. And he's not saving you primarily from hell. He's saving you from yourself. And that's the beginning of wisdom. And confession is when you don't do what Adam and Eve did. And, And all of us little Adams and Eves continue to do. My mother bit me when I was five. You know, the sun was in my eye. It took a bad hop. Um, we, we are experts at blame shifting, excuse making, rationalizing. We have master's degrees in modern psychology. You know, um, the problem is there's no empowerment in that. I can't go back and change my mother. I called my mother this week on her birthday. She's 88 years old. She has Alzheimer's and, um, I can just love her now. I'm so glad to talk with her and spend time with her. And she remembers a few things once in a while about 
long, long time ago, and every conversation we have, I moved to Dayton in 1984, and she says, so, you live in Dayton now? When did you move, when did you move to Dayton? Because she can, for some reason, she can still remember some things from our childhood and her childhood, but she can't remember anything that happened in the last 30 or so years. So, you know, can, confession is when you get past, my mother bit me when I was five. My problems are not my mother's fault. <laughs> they're, they're my responses to what happened. If I have unforgiveness or bitterness or whatever, it's not um, someone else's fault. It's that I embraced unforgiveness and bitterness because I like it. Because I think somehow saying that rotten person who stole my books in third grade and beat me up, I sure hope God gets them. And then, you know, when you pray out of unforgiveness and bitterness, you pray, think, God, deal with that person, get them. (laughs) And uh, so now this thing about the attributes of God, let's let's kind of hit the get get on target with some of this. Um, Here's what uh, we're up against here. Many, many, many evangelicals are starting to see that we have a very man-centered gospel and a very man-centered kind of Christianity. We make consumers of religious service. People don't go to church. The reason the churches that have the, 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 the nicer-looking buildings and the more polished speakers who can actually stay on topic, unlike me, and, uh, and the, uh, you know, the really fancy musicians, and all, the reason they do better is because we're used to good entertainment. We want our ears tickled, and we want good entertainment. And the idea that I'm supposed to become a radical disciple that actually learns how to make radical disciples, that I'm supposed to become the solution, not just know some solutions, that I'm supposed to be able to say, like Paul, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. Can you say the things you learned and heard and seen in me? Do these things, and the God of peace will dwell with you. Can you say you want to know Jesus? Just start hanging out with us. Because <laughs> you're going to catch it. That's really what making disciples versus making decisions about. About experience that comes out of conception, not just mere conceptions. Theology is important. Nobody, nobody emphasizes Bible study or theology. People get scared how much we emphasize that. However, it's, the word has to become flesh and dwell within you. Now, concepts like the Trinity, the Creator, there's a reason why there's been this attack on creation, uh, which gave birth to what was called the modernist fundamentalist controversy of the late 1800s. Because if you take God as Creator out, then it's all about you, you're not accountable to anybody. And you get to where we are in postmodernism. Most postmodern people don't see that there's objective. I hate that word. There's uh, transcendent reality outside and above ourselves. And reality has nothing to do with what I think, see, want, or feel. I always know that I'm just beginning with someone in discipleship when they're still big on I think and I see and I feel and I want and so forth. Uh, You know, I want you to be honest about that, but I want you to see you got to have God rescue your perspectives. That's what it means to come to know the way, the truth, and the life. So this um, 
you know, I, I don't have time for all this about the attributes of God. We, you know, did a message on it, and we highly recommend that you read something like A.W. Tozier's book called The Knowledge of the Holy. Study the attributes of God. Take our theology class. There's a reason why there's a whole section on the attributes of God. But somehow, you've got to get a bigger God in your mind and heart. It's as simple as that. Our God is too small in modern times. If you deal with anybody's codependency issues, I'd recommend a book called When God, how's it go? When, when people are big and God is small. Because that's the ish, the ish, essence of, of codependency is you fall or rise on someone else's behaviors or attitudes or motivations. You have no firm root in a big view of God. You know, I've had lots of people testify to me that when I started to understand the sovereignty of God, that's when my eyes started getting open to progress in the gospel. So, weaving back in these grace, conviction, confession things, again, you want to set the table as best you can to, to, to have people trust God to, to be honest and to see deeply who they are. Because Proverbs 21.2, this is about postmodernism. Wow, gee, Solomon knew about postmodernism? <laughs> because postmodernism is just a, a culture that's become progressively ungodly for a long, long time, becoming more and more ungodly. Uh, Proverbs twenty-one, twenty-two: Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. I like the uh, NET in this particular case. All of person's ways seem right in his own opinion. We have we have a culture that has enthroned people's opinions, and you will get the most uneducated, unsta- unstable, and unstudied uh, people with very, very strong opinions about things that they know almost nothing about when it comes to metaphysical, spiritual issues. We are, we, we are brainwashed in our culture to become know-it-alls without actually studying anything. It's, a, it's a, kind of a magic trick almost. Uh, biblical psychology. And you don't just blast them out of the water and say, you're a know-it-all. Remember this one? Uh, a pastor friend of mine who was my pastor at the time talking to this young guy who I was, uh, he was kind of just trying to help me in bringing him along in the Lord. And he said, Billy, your problem is you're a know-it-all. And Billy said, oh, I know. <laughs> and I thought, Lord, help me. Uh, John 9, uh, the whole chapter is great. But Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we blind also? Jesus said to him, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. Now, the Greek there is, the New American Standard says sin, because the Greek word is hamartia, which is the tra- traditionally translated sin. But now, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The essence of forgiveness is based on true confession. 
And when you see confession rightly, we often take people through a book, one of our kind of foundational books that we try to get people to read in the first year or two of their walking with Christ is a book called The Total Forgiveness Experience. Because what Jesus is saying in Matthew 18 in the parable of the unrighteous steward who owed his master tens of millions of dollars and he uh, wouldn't forgive his fellow servant uh, for a day's wage, he, what Jesus wants you to see is that's you and that's me. And when we have petty unforgivenesses, we haven't really understood the gospel yet. We haven't understood that we're the ones that betrayed Jesus. We're the ones that denied him. We're the ones that crucified him. We're the ones that drove the nails into the hands. And until we see that, there's little hope for us. Luke 6 says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? This is also in Matthew 7, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount. But do not notice the log that's in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your it's in your eye. When you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye, you hypocrite, which hypocrisis means wearing a false front or a false face and thinking you're something that you're not. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to stake the speck out of your brother's eye. Man, I, I know I talk about this verse a lot. If you really study the difference between liberal politics and conservative politics, both of them have a very heavy element of seeing the speck in everyone else's eye. The reason I'm not very, I don't like the Democrats and I don't like the Republicans and I don't like, uh, anyway, the reason Jesus, Jesus never endorsed political parties because you know what? I, the problem's me. I got logs. And if I will let God take the logs out of my eyes, then I can begin to, to help you see how to take the logs out of your eyes. <laughs> uh, now, one of the things about this is this. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, is forcibly entered as the literal, has been, or has been coming violently as the ESV's version of the literal in the notes. And violent men take it by force or seize it for themselves. One of the things that you have to just be loving enough to have relationship, and it may take one, two, three years sometimes of walking with people, is, is simply this. Our culture is discipling people in passivity. A lot of that has to do with video entertainment versus like, because when you read, you actually have to actually engage yourself. People who spend hours on Facebook and hours on video games and and there, there's all kind of, it's not just video, but that's one of the contributing factors. But our, people are very passive about God. And you have to walk with them long enough till God arouses the zeal for the kingdom. Till they're like, Jehu, stand back and see my zeal for the Lord. You know, uh, most people are, are not going to take themselves by the horn and make themselves do what they got to do to get their life straightened out. And you just have to love them till the grace starts to grow in their life for it. Grace will cause people to become seekers. 
I can always tell when people have not, I can tell how much grace working in, in people's life by how hungry they are for the scripture and that they've begun to see the scripture according to Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is like a living sword, active and sharper than this and all that and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. When you begin to see the scripture not as something to put on someone else, but you begin to be deeply disturbed. You know, I always know the people who are doing the best because they're the most convicted by the messages. <laughs> and they seek out the godly counsel. You know, uh, you know, we try as a church to, to put someone together that says, uh, this person's old enough in the Lord. You know, we have people like Deanna and Emily and John and, and Beth and people who've been, Deanna, Leah, who've been equipped to do this. And we say, have a relationship with this person. Get the, And when they don't seek that relationship out, it's of, because truth always hurts. Let's jump down because of time's sake, and I don't really want to come back here next week to, uh, I didn't even get to the second page. Let's tr- jump down to Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love, because that's what I really want to get across. I had a wonderful week, got to uh, do a funeral for uh, a family that I know that only one person's a Christian and a really troubled kind of family history and so forth. And, and I, got, I got to work with a lot of people who are just really, really troubled and really, really blind this week. So much I couldn't even return all the phone calls or keep up with it. And, uh, you know, um, the hardest part about it is this we have been we have been grown, we have cultivated deep in our character the worst thing of all the things that, that that you need to help people get set free from is the grace to admit to confess the grace to seek i spent time with a lost guy yesterday and um he's been a church goer for all kind of crazy churches he was mormon for a while and then you know, he was whatever, but now he's in a more orthodox church, but it's pretty dead and, and so forth. And, and um, this guy is about as troubled as the day is long. And we talked for a while. And the whole conversation, he was doing the talking, uh, unlike Sunday mornings when I get to do the talking. But, uh, <laughs> and he just proceeded to tell me what a good father he was and how godly he was and all how he, you know, led the Boy Scouts right, and how he did all this. for, And he basically was proclaiming his own righteousness. And he had no clue just how troubled of a person he is. And that's just where people who are lost are at. And you're going to have to make up your mind. I guess I, I got to bring this to a close, and I don't feel like I delivered my soul, and I hate that. But you're going to have to make up your mind. If you're going to love people, you got to love them long enough to wait them out. I just try to get people coming on Sunday mornings. I try to get them to come to one or two of our other meetings, and I try to get them in a relationship with someone who's mature enough to help them grow. And I just pray that over time, they'll find the grace of conviction confession where they get it 
that the consequences they're facing, the divorce they're facing, the whatever, the bankruptcy they're facing, the loss of another job, uh, all the things that people go through, uh, the addiction they can't overcome, the fact that they've lost their mind and lost in touch with reality. You know, uh, one, one reason I love Nathan Hager so much is because we've walked together since he was a little boy. And uh, he had no ears to hear anything for a long, long time until he became such a drug addict that he did time in jail and all that kind of stuff. But the worst part of it all was he eventually did so many drugs, he completely lost touch with reality. And he sat in my living room and told me how he was God's solution for to bring down the satanic hierarchy in the earth. And when he left, I started to cry. And I cried, I cried, but I never gave up on him. And I kept the relationship open and I kept sharing with him and so forth. There was a time he was living at my house and he had to go back to drugs. And he didn't have to, he had, he had to leave the house is what I meant to say, because he went back to drugs and so forth. But I let him know, I still love you. You're still welcome at church. And I will always love you no matter what. And I will wait and wait and wait till God, by his grace, gives you ears to hear the conviction, confession, continuum. And you can begin to hear the godly people, like in Nathan's case, his father and, and uh, John and other brothers who he needed to hear to, to come back to reality. Now, Nathan is one of the deeply maturing, stabilizing, wonderful brothers in our church. And if you had met him five years ago, you wouldn't be able to believe that now. And that's what it's all about. You've got to, you've got to decide that you're going, if you can love people and have Bible studies and so forth, but if you eventually don't get the grace to look them in the eye and say, what I hear you saying is there's logs in your wife's eye, there's logs in your boss's eye, there's, you know, or specks in there. And that, you know, God's the problem, the church is the problem, my boss is the problem, everybody's the problem. You need the grace to see you're the problem. And that will set you free. Amen.